please turn your Bibles to the book of Judges. The congregation's been working our way uh, through this book. We've come now to kind of the prelude to the eighth judge. Uh, last week we saw at the beginning of chapter 10 a little uh, kind of breath, uh, breath of fresh air, a little break in the action. There were two judges mentioned, Tola and Jair, uh, and a, a, a time of relative peace and tranquility, uh, which was great, coming out of the um, civil war that had been instigated by Abimelech in the aftermath of Gideon's judgeship. So this is setting the stage now for the eighth judge, which will come on the scene here at the beginning of chapter 11. Uh, So we'll read uh, chapter 10, verse 6, almost to the end of the chapter, not quite. And uh, we'll be reading about the situation with the people that um, necessitates the sending of another judge. This is the word of God. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. From that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Ammonites, of the Ammonites, I'm sorry, the Amorites in Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah also, against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you, because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines, also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I delivered you from their their hand, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless his word to us as we consider it together this morning. Last week, there was a news story that was linked to by uh, a website a lot of Christians read. It was an interview with a famous uh, musician, a pop, pop musician. And he explained that he had taken to, he prays twice a day and he prays at meals. And the interviewer, sort of shocked by that, said, well, who do you pray to? And he said, well, he prays to God. And then he went on to add, I'm not religious in any way, but I kind of believe in God, and I try to live a life that honors my idea of what God is, like a divine energy. Um, Sorry, not something to really celebrate. Uh, It's amazing to me how uh, Christians seem to be 
grasping for cultural validation, right? That is not it right there. Um, But it does reflect what is a really common view of God, which is God is this kind of nebulous thing out there, and uh, I plug into it if it helps me and if it makes my life better. And sadly, I think even as Christians, we can fall into that type of thinking about who God is. God is this sort of ill-defined thing out there, and he works sort of like a machine. And if I punch the right buttons, I should get the right outcomes. And for some people, if they think they're punching the right buttons and they're not getting the outcomes they want, then they begin to doubt God, not necessarily their view of God. And against that, the Bible tells you that God is a personal being. He is a person. And we relate to him as to a person. We're not equals, clearly. God is glorious. The Bible tells us God is three persons in one being. He's mysterious. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And yet, the way you and I are to, are to relate to him as, is as to a person, not as to a system in which we do things in order to get outcomes that we want. So as we look at the passage, and this is highlighted in this passage because this was part of the problem of the way the Israelites looked at God, and the passage highlights the personhood of God and our, our need to relate to him personally we see here that God is a glorious person to know and to love. What a blessing that is. He's not a system to be manipulated. And so then knowing that, we are to serve him with reverence and with godly fear. God is a person to know and to love. And children, if you want to draw a picture for me, maybe draw a picture of uh, these people crying out to God. And what are they asking for God to do for them? Well, there is an outline in your bulletin. If you'd like to follow along, the first thing I want us to notice is that idolatry in some form or another is an ever-present temptation for you and for me. Uh, We see in verse 6, then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did this again. This is a repeat of something we've seen numerous times in this book. Now, realize that we've covered so far in this book 240 years of time have passed. So we're talking about generations. This is happening over the course of generations. And we know that there was at least 45 years of peace following Abimelech's rebellion after Gideon. It could have been longer than that, but at least 45 years of relative peace. So what's really happening here is that the generation that's enjoyed these blessings and, and uh, has known a good time is now squandering that Uh, In the present time, they are turning away from the Lord. And verse 6 is really quite detailed. This is one of the most detailed descriptions of the people turning away that we've had so far in the book. And it tells us uh, not only that they serve the Baals and the Asherahs, those would be the local gods of the Canaanites around them within the promised land, but they did even more than that because it said they also served the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And if you're counting, that's seven different gods listed there. 
And uh, when, you, when you get a biblical number of seven, that typically is meaning it's representative. Seven is a complete number. And so this is sort of representative of the fact that you're basically chasing after any and every god that you can find to worship. It's kind of a next level of idolatry. You're not just satisfied to worship the gods that are right around you. You're actually going out to the nations that surround the promised land, and you're trying to find gods that they worship uh, and going after them. Matthew Henry, uh, uh, commenting on this, and these, uh, these quotes are in your bulletin as well, says, by introducing these foreign deities, they rendered themselves mean and despicable, for no nation that had any sense of honor changed their gods. I, I think that's incredible. He, he's, saying, uh, he's saying basically even pagans... Uh, like Chicago Cubs fans, refuse to change their allegiance. They show, show more loyalty, right? Whether the team wins or loses, they're there. And here you have God's very people rejecting their God. And, and actually it's happening in a time of prosperity and blessing. And uh, Henry rightly calls it mean and despicable. And so what we're seeing in this book of Judges is the spiral continues, but it is a downward spiral. It's not just a circle, it's it's going down, and the people are getting worse and worse when they turn from the Lord. And in fact, they're saying, you know, is there an easier, better way for us to be successful as farmers in this land? And let's see what ideas the, the people around us have for how we can be Uh, more successful. There must be a better way than following God. And it's very easy for us to read this and to shake our heads. What's wrong with these people? How can they be so stupid? And yet we find ourselves facing similar temptations on a constant basis, and we regularly succumb to us. We tell ourselves if we could only have this thing uh, or this situation or this relationship or this opportunity or this job, or whatever it is, then we would be happy. And all along, that is a lie. That is a lie, because God is the only thing that can truly fulfill you and make you happy in a way that's healthy and meaningful. But we're always looking for satisfaction in other things, and even things that are good things. And, and our, our propensity is to, if it's not working, we double down on it. So uh, if my success at my work is not really fulfilling me, then maybe what I do is decide, well, I need to work harder. I need to work longer hours. I'm, I'm not working hard enough. Or maybe you need to find a new job where I can find that thing that I'm really looking for. Or same thing with our relationships, right? If, this, if my relationships aren't giving me you know, what, I, what I want out of them, then I need more relationships. I need new relationships. Tim Keller, speaking about this, says, I think appropriately, we see our problem as, not as worshiping an idol, but as not worshiping an idol enough. That that's, in fact, often the way we respond. This is a temptation for us, as it was for these people, always looking for something to invest our hopes in. It's a constant danger, an ever-present temptation. Secondly, though, we see in the passage that God is gracious to punish your idolatry. Verse 7 tells us the anger of the Lord burned against the people. It was hot 
against the people of Israel. God is righteous and God is holy. And these people continue to spit in his face. And so he responds appropriately. The second half of verse 7 says that he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. So God is the one who gives them over to oppression. And it mentions the Philistines who are on the west and the Ammonites who are on the east. In fact, the Ammon is over the uh, Jordan River, on the east side of the Jordan River. And then basically setting up the rest of the book of Judges, we will deal in this next judge, Jephthah, with the Ammonite threat. And then he will come back and the last major judge is Samson to talk about the Philistine threat from the west. Uh, But here he focuses on Ammon. In verse 8, he says that uh, from that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. And uh, that word that's uh, translated in my version as harassed could be translated shattered or crushed. It's a a very powerful verb that they're they're oppressing the people in a violent way, uh, taking their livelihood and ruling over them. And this is happening over an 18-year period. It says uh, all the, the, the Israelites on the other side of the Jordan, that is on the eastern side near where Ammon was, they're all being dominated during this time. And as this goes on, verse 9 tells us that the Ammonites uh, decided that wasn't enough, and they start coming across the Jordan River right into the heart of the people of Israel where Judah and Ephraim and Benjamin are attacking them and causing severe distress, as the text says. It was a total disaster. Now, I know, children, we've talked about this before. When you do something wrong, uh, you hit your brother, uh, you tell a lie uh, to your mom, and your parents punish you, that is a good thing. Uh, That is because your parents love you, and they know if they let you just do whatever you want and to continue to go in the way you're going, that it won't be good for you. So they discipline you because they love you. And, and so we see this in the book of Judges again and again. And what we actually see is God's incredibly precise way of making sure the punishment fits the crime. And he says, in essence, if you want to serve these gods, then okay, Uh, we'll let you serve the the nations of these gods. You can have exactly what you ask for. Uh, One commentator says the judgment for idolatry is idolatry. In in other words, you you get what you choose. And so uh, you want to serve the gods of the Ammonites, then you go ahead. And uh, this is actually something that we need to give thanks for, that God loves us enough not to just let us go, go off and do whatever we're inclined to do, but he brings us back. He, in a sense, punishes us, chastises us, and draws us back. Now, remember, we've said this before, all suffering is not the result of our sin. So just because you're dealing with suffering doesn't mean it's the result of something that you've done. But sometimes it is, and it certainly is in this case here. God loves them enough to... Uh, deal with them when they turn away from him. Uh, when, when I went off to college, I would say one of my gods was athletics. I had a number of gods. None of them was the real god. And uh, I had had a lot of success in athletics. 
And so that was a big part of my life. It was a big part of my identity. And when I got into college, uh, my love of athletics became a burden and a great trial in my life. And uh, it was in that context that God brought me to faith in Christ. And I realized that this idol, as well as others that I had, was not going to be able to save me from myself. And I'm very thankful that the Lord did that in my life, although it was very painful at the time. And this is often the way God's, God works. God takes your hobbies, um, your children, your job, your health, whatever it is you're invested in for your sense of well-being and identity, and God uses those very things to show you you're not putting him first, that these things have become idols in your lives, and we should be thankful for God's grace when he punishes us for our idolatry. Thirdly, we see here in this text that God is not a system for you to manipulate. So in verse 10, the children of Israel cry out to the Lord. They say, we've sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. This this sounds like a good confession. They acknowledge what they've done. They ask for forgiveness. They call it sin. Uh, They seem to be doing the right thing. And we know how this is supposed to work. Uh, They sin. God responds. They confess. Then God comes riding in to save them. And that's how God works, right? That's God's job. This is what's supposed to happen. And yet in this passage, in verses 11 to 14, we find out that this is not what happens. God does not come riding in to the rescue. Uh, In fact, God's answer is very different. In verses 11 and 12, God rehearses all that he had already done for them. And he mentions the Egyptians and the Amorites and Ammon and the Philistines and the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites. He mentions seven nations he's delivered them from. Again, we should see this as a picture of all that he's done to deliver them. And it's tracing from the Exodus, where he takes them out of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land, through the conquest, and in the settlement of the land. God has been there for them every single time. And so then he indicts them in verse 13. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. I have done all this for you over generations, and you continue to turn away from me. And so God takes the radical step here of saying, I'm done. I'm not going to rescue you. And in verse 14, his answer is very fitting. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. You you want them to bless you? You think they're the ones that control the world? Then then let them save you. Let them save you. And of course, we know that those are no gods at all. They can't possibly help. One commentator calls the approach of the Israelites here bomb shelter theology, which is to say that only when the bombs start falling do they come back to God and they ask for forgiveness. Uh, Tim Keller, again, speaking about this, says they're trying to treat God as if he were one of their idols. They're trying to push the right buttons, make the right sacrifices in order to get him to exert his power for them. 
And Ralph Davis says it this way, that he's like a warm, he's like a great warm vending machine in the sky into which you need only drop a token or two of repentance before he spits out the relief you currently crave. And, and maybe it's saying too much to say that their original repentance is insincere, uh, but, uh, but it seems fair that it's inadequate. And uh, the point is that you can't just live any way you want, and then when things get difficult, at the last second, you call God to come in and bail you out, as if God just exists out there to serve you uh, and to come in when you need him. But this is exactly what they are doing. Now, children, we read earlier in the service about Simon the sorcerer. And you remember, Simon wanted to be a Christian, and he thought that uh, he, he could have the same power that the apostles had, the power of the Holy Spirit, that that would be a way for him to maintain his status and uh, his position in the community and to make money, perhaps. And you remember Peter's response, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. Uh, God is not a machine. God is not a set of principles. Uh, God is not a philosophy that we use for our purposes. This is a terrible way of thinking about God, but I would submit that this creeps into your thinking. Uh, You can't avoid it. Uh, you have a deal with God, right? God, we have a deal. I show up at church, uh, I pray uh, before my meals and maybe a few other times, and then you take care of me. And that's our arrangement. And this seems to be what the Jews thought. It's often, sadly, the way we act. We may never say it that way, but we act that way. And when these Jews threw up their superficial repentance, God said, no. And uh, that is meant to get your attention. That is meant to get your attention. That God never has to say yes to whatever it is you're asking for. He's not a system to be manipulated. Fourthly, we see rather that God is a glorious person for you to know and love. And so in verse 15, we see a new level of repentance in the children of Israel. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems best to you. They just throw themselves on the mercy of God, recognizing their hopelessness. And part of this is understanding, right, that sin is not just we got an error code in the game, you know, and we have to hit reset. It it is an offense against a person, a perfect, holy, righteous person. That's what we sang about in Psalm 51, where David, acknowledging his sins, which were against other people involving adultery and murder, and yet David writes, against you, God, you only, Have I sinned and done this evil in your sight? Because ultimately, any sin against another person is a sin against God, the righteous and holy creator. And so this is not just being sorry that we got caught. This is not being sorry that there's bad consequences. It's sorrow over offending 
a holy God. And you see how this sorrow is manifested in their lives. In verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and they serve the Lord. So even before God has delivered them, they have turned away from their foolishness. They have put the idols away and they have committed to serving and worshiping the Lord. Lord, do what to us seems good to you. We will love and serve you. And this is an example of what the New Testament calls godly sorrow. It's not just superficial behavior change. It's a change of heart. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 9 and 10, where there Paul writes, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul had written them a hard letter confronting them in their sin, and it had made them sad, but they experienced a change of heart. And I think that's what we see happening in the Israelites here And that is, in fact, what is needed in our own lives. We recognize we've turned from God, we've put idols in the way, that we turn back to him with hearts committed to serving him, recognizing that our relationship with God is a relationship with a person. About a week ago, there was an advice column, I've never read this before, uh, called Ask Amy in the Chicago Tribune, And one of those columns made national news. Some of you are chuckling, so maybe you've seen what I'm referring to. In this advice column, uh, Angry in Philadelphia writes in to Amy about her brother Dave. And uh, Angry is upset because uh, Dave's niece has gotten married and Dave did not send a wedding present. So it's sort of like, can you believe my cheapskate brother didn't send his own niece a wedding present? Because he normally does send, you know, wedding presents in excess of $1,000 to uh, the family. Sounds pretty good. I'd like to have an Uncle Dave myself. So then it's only if you read more of the story that you find out why Uncle Dave is not sending the wedding present. And it turns out that Uncle Dave was invited to the wedding. But his niece went to her mom and said, Dave's politics make me feel unsafe. So the mom writes her brother a nice letter, by her own admission, and says to Brother Dave, "Um, the bride would not feel safe with you at the wedding, so we'd like you to stay away. So Dave didn't come to the wedding. Well, after the wedding, his sister, angry, uh, writes him and sends him pictures of the wedding to, quote, help him feel included after the fact, after being invited, being uninvited, sends him some pictures, and now he has not sent the wedding present. And angry is writing, asking what she should do about her cheapskate brother who's being so petty that he won't send the present. And mercifully, uh, Ask Amy, whoever she is, said back, in effect, the only person with any integrity in this whole story is Uncle Dave. (laughs) Uncle Dave is doing exactly what you asked him to do, which is to stay clear. 
And so he's doing it. So you should realize the bank of Uncle Dave is closed to your branch of the family. And, and we read that and, and, and we, we hear that and we think, well, of course, Uncle Dave has every right not to give a gift to someone who feels that his mere presence is a threat to their safety and security. He has that right. But I would submit we don't extend that same credit, that same freedom to God. And we read here, God said no. And we're thinking, wait, God can't say no when they're asking for help. And the problem is, in our heart of hearts, we think God is a giant ATM in the sky. But God is a person. And we give God the Uncle Dave treatment all the time. We ignore him for long stretches. We don't thank him when he blesses us. We skip our devotional time. We don't give to his work faithfully. We don't study our Bibles like we should. We don't invest in the lives of others. We, in effect, tell God we don't want him around in different ways. And then we're shocked that God could be so petty as to not give us the things that we want. And part of the problem is we don't see that God is a person, a holy, righteous, perfect person, all-powerful, all-knowing, glorious. This text is not here to teach us that God changes his mind, Ooh, because God is going to save them. Spoiler alert. It's not to teach us that God doesn't know what's going to happen. He's waiting to figure it out. It's here to remind you that your God is a personal being, a being that you can know relationally. And that is an incredible thing because you can know this God. This God loves you and you can love him back. So the text is pushing on you this idea. God is not, it's not about following a set of rules. It's not about believing a set of propositions. It's about knowing and loving a wonderful being who runs this universe. Jesus says it this way in John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what it means to be a Christian, to have a relationship with God as a person. God's not a system to manipulate. He's a glorious person to know and to love. And so finally, we see here that God's compassion to you enables you to serve him with reverence and godly fear. So to confirm what we're saying here about the, the personhood of God, Verse 16 ends this way, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. God's heart went out to the people. He was moved with compassion because of their suffering. 
And this is going to lay the foundation for then the next judge who comes on the scene, which we'll read about uh, next time. The passage is not teaching you, though, that uh, what really happened here was they got that repentance piece right, right? They got the repentance right, and then it clicked into gear, and God had to respond, right? Because that's just another version of the video game view of God. That's not what this is about. Ralph Davis says, helpfully, our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. So don't take away from this that if I repent good enough, then God will give me what I want. That's not what this is saying either. God is compassionate, and his heart goes out to his people. You and I don't love God as we should. We don't serve him as we should. We routinely succumb to idolatry in all kinds of forms. And we treat him like a vending machine at times. And we don't repent as we should. But God loves us for the sake of his son. Uh, Psalm 103 verse 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. You cannot have the compassionate God as your father unless you have come to him through Jesus Christ. Because you and I are by nature idolaters, we're self-serving, we seek to manipulate God. And Jesus came into the world committed to serving God perfectly. He knew God and he loved God. Why was he out in the dark before everyone else was up trying to get away from the crowds to be alone with the Lord? It wasn't because he was checking things off his to-do list. It wasn't because someone was making him do it. It was because he knew and loved his heavenly father. And because Jesus genuinely loved the father, he never tried to manipulate God. He never tried to get his own way with God. And because Jesus did that for people like us, we can be forgiven for all the times that we do that. And we have the promise of his grace actually at work in our lives to help us be the kind of people he wants us to be. I put on your outline Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Philip read those verses at the beginning of the service. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. It's not to say God isn't a person. It's to say he's a holy. He's a holy, righteous person, like a fire. But look at what it says. We are receiving a kingdom. God is doing something for us. And because of what God is doing, you can serve him with reverence and godly fear. God is infinitely holy and righteous, but he's also a person that you can know and love through the Lord Jesus Christ who removes your sin and makes it possible. We need to thank God that Jesus is our perfect mediator who can bring us to the Father. And we need to ask God to help us have the grace we need to turn from our idols, to stop manipulating God, and to seek to know and love him 
as our holy, righteous creator, who is a person who gave his son for us. God is glorious, and he's a person you can know and love. He's not a system you manipulate. Thank God that we can serve him through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and give him thanks. Heavenly Father, we confess that in our own way, each one of us has sought to manipulate you for our own purposes. We have perhaps subtly bought into the fiction that you exist for our happiness and pleasure and our purposes. And we ask that you would please forgive us when we've uh, treated you like this woman treated her uncle Dave. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to see you as the glorious person you are, three persons in one being, living in perfect harmony, a God that we can know, a God who has revealed himself to us. And we thank you that our Savior has made it possible for us to be forgiven and for us to know you. And we pray, Lord, you would help us then to be those that would put away our idolatry, who would not look to things in the world for our satisfaction, but would look only to you, and that you would help us to serve you sincerely and with fear and reverence. For we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen. And let's uh, sing our praise back to the Lord now from Psalm 111, Selection A. This is a psalm of praise, and uh, it mentions, uh, it praises God for his wondrous works, and it mentions a number of his works. Uh, But then you see in stanza four, uh, he made his wonders lasting signs, remembered endlessly. The Lord is most compassionate and merciful is he. God's compassion is ultimately uh, what makes him save us. And so we uh, give thanks to God for his great compassion to us through Christ. Let's stand and sing our praise to him. <laughs> 